Hey everyone, Brian here. Welcome to the Happy Harvest Horror Show. Just wanted to give everyone a heads up that we had some sound and mic issues for this episode that I did my best to fix, but uh, just like Victor Frankenstein's creation, it didn't come out the prettiest. But unlike Victor Frankenstein, we will not be tossing this creature. We will cherish it, we will love it, and next week when Corey's back, it will sound much better, just like Pride of Frankenstein was better. Enjoy the show! Look out, something is going to get you tonight. Let's talk about the thing that's going to get you tonight. Welcome to the Happy Harvest Horror Show. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. And I'm Connor. Connor's back! Yay! And this is the Happy Harvest Horror Show, where every week we get together and talk about all things spooky, scary, creepy, ooky. And this week we've got another fun, spooky topic, uh, especially fun for all watchers of the now dead, twice dead, Penny Dreadful show on Showtime. And we thought no one better than our old Catholic friend Connor from our Catholic episode talking about debatably more Catholic art for the Penny Dreadful. Um, so welcome back, Connor. I'm so happy to have you back. Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be back. I, it was not lost on me that I was like, ah, the last time I was here, we talked about why growing up Catholic makes you spooky. And then I thought, well, we're going to talk about Penny Dreadful. And I was like, that's <laughs> exactly along the same veins, actually. That's, it's the same thing. And this is technically your third episode, because that episode was in two parts. You're so. right. And just to address the elephant in the room, Corey's not with us this week. We miss her. She has not seen the show yet, so she's dead to us. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's hope for a resurrection. <laughs> Absolutely. It'll just be us two, and she'll be back next week, so no worries there. But before we get into this, we have a lot to talk about in the show. So much. But before we get into that, Connor, how spooky was your week? You know, I feel like my week was pretty sans spook. You know, now I'm going to think about it later and I'm going to be like, oh no, that thing that happened earlier this week was really spooky, but I didn't say anything about it. But I I was just vaccinated for the, I got the Moderna vaccine today, so I'm, I don't mm-hmm. feel very spooky, but I feel very lucky and my arm is a little sore. So um, I don't know, there's needles involved. It's spooky, yeah, I mean, kind of. shots I mean, are spooky. Right, I, yeah, I, some people are scared of that, but it I was, can't do it. Yeah, it was a lovely, it was as lovely of an experience as I could have hoped for. I remember getting a shot a few years ago, and and right before I got it, I'm just you know making nervous small talk. Like, <laughs> is everyone as nervous as I am? Yes. And she, without a without blinking, the nurse just goes, "No, only the men." Oh my, <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I Oh my gosh. That's funny. The last time that I was with my mother getting a flu shot, uh, mm-hmm. the person giving me the shot, he, he noticed he was looking at my vaccination records. He was like, oh, it looks like you're overdue for, I don't know if it was a tetanus booster or something. He was like, do you want to get that done today too? And I said, sir, I showed up here today mentally preparing myself for a flu shot mm-hmm. and absolutely nothing else. So <laughs> you are pushing your luck. Yeah, as convenient and as an adult of a choice that would be, I simply cannot. I'm really just only going to get a flu shot. I simply can't. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I imagine you as like a yeah. like a scandalized like Victorian. Yeah, not far off. Not far off, yes. I tipped <laughs> my hat to him and he just 
swung my cane and was right out the door. It's probably because I got Penny Dreadful on the brain. I see everything. Everyone speaks in prose and poetic speak. Yeah, everyone's highly educated. <laughs> Everyone knows all the poets, knows Absurd. all. Yeah, they're like, oh, Coleridge? Oh, Wordsworth? Shelley? Sure, yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. I'm nodding along watching the show. Like, I know mm-hmm. anything. Where you're like, definitely looking at like, what is Adamaeus? Mm, what? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that, too, because there's a lot of names and mythological creatures that show up Indeed. in that show that are just like, yeah, they exist here. And then other things that I'm like, anyway, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Yes. Before we get into it, I am for my spooky week was just oh, yes. binging this show. We decided to have you on last week. Is and it we were talking a week? It has been a week. No, probably under a week. This is what, Thursday? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's less than a week. We're going to have you back on for this episode. And we're asking, what would you like to talk about? And you were right away, Penny Dreadful. So perfect opportunity for me to binge this show and i did three seasons i watched over the weekend yes i actually finished the show 30 minutes before (laughs) recording this so i am fresh fresh with hot takes but before we get into talking about this really special show and we'll have a little spoiler free kind of talking abroad things we love about the show what is the show before we get into spoilers so just you know There is content for everyone here. Just wanted to give that disclaimer. Before we get into it, I wanted to thank all our monthly supporters, Erica, Jennifer, Jody, Aaron, and now Morgan. Thank you all so much. Really appreciate all of your support. It helps us keep going um, and staying spooky all year round for all you guys. And if you'd like to be a member of this spooky coven of supporters, please go to anchor.fm slash hhhs slash support and you can throw us your spare change as well please do because that helps us keep going and anything helps thank you guys all so much so now let's get into some benny dreadful connor yes if you had to give an elevator pitch of why someone should check out this showtime gothic uh would you call it thriller what would you say i would say evergreen 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 (laughs) And if that doesn't sell it, and I would follow that up with Patty Lapone, Patty Lapone, Patty Lapone. Patty Lapone. Absolutely, Patty Lapone. What is Penny Dreadful? A Penny Dreadful, it takes its name from, I guess, what you would think of as like Victorian comic books, essentially. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was all sorts of lurid, grand guignol tales about murder and, and, monsters and you know there are a couple sort of classic victorian horror tales that we know that started in that fashion like i believe varney the vampire started yeah. as as a penny dreadful sweeney so, todd sweeney did. todd indeed yeah yeah so it's yeah it, it takes its name from that uh, sort of tradition that literary tradition and they cost a penny they were cheap for right. the mass populace and i think there that'd be an interesting podcast to do sometime because i think horror is most enjoyed by the lowest economic you know audience yeah, because of yeah. our fucked up you and, know, world but and i imagine that it must have been sort of lowbrow you know, the sort of mm-hmm. things that, like, you're not going to admit that you purchased a Penny Dreadful, even though you probably were really looking forward to, like, what was going to happen next. But, right. you know, like, yeah. while while Charles Dickens is busy, like, submitting the next chapter of his, you know, long epic book, whatever it is, to, um, you know, whatever, whatever the newspaper is. I can't think of any newspapers <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, and sure. everybody, everybody's talking about reading that. Plenty of other people are probably, like, under their pillow, under their mattress, 
have these penny dreadfuls that they're reading that they just don't know that everybody else is probably reading too. And like, who right. are going to talk about it with? <laughs> I definitely would have been buying every episode of this. Right. I'm still a comic reader. I'm still a yeah. <laughs> watch every horror movie that comes into theater. So it was, it was just the precursor to exactly. what we'd have. And, and it was the same with um, like the American dime novels. A lot of them yeah. were edited and rewritten yes. for these like Buffalo Bill and Absolutely. like Deadwood Dick and all that. So, this show is a kind of an homage to all of that. Yeah. It's this like Victorian gothic horror, I guess, pulpy story, would you say, right? That like yeah. it's, it's pulling together. It's kind of like a greatest hits of everything spooky Victorian times and puts it in this narrative that's very heightened and it's, well, it's such I, a unique show. I think and, and sort of the brainchild of it, you know, John Logan, the, the writer and the creator of the show... I think he had had the show in mind for something like 10 years before they ever started it. And I think it's, really? I think the origin of it was he was really just thinking about the Frankenstein story and his fascination with that. And then also mm. his own knowledge and interest in romantic poetry, which of course romantic period predates the Victorian period, but it's, it would have been part of the Victorian's education. They all would have been familiar sure. with, you know, those poets. And so he was also very fascinated with that. So I think there was a lot of that brewing. But then I, I don't know at what point he decided to then center the story around an original character, and then have all of these other well known literary characters from that sort of gothic genre interact with her and try to connect all of those threads. Right. And there sort are a lot like of a, characters. Yeah, sort of like a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen situation. I had that exact thought watching it that there's there was a lot of yes. ingredients that I felt like shared with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yes. And what I also thought was really fascinating, and we'll get into later when we get into spoilers in, in specific ways that they do this, but they are the characters from the books, but John Logan's pretty freely yeah. adapting them for this story. Um, right. So so there are things that are like completely faithful to the books and their source material. And then there are times where it completely goes off course and that laws and rules and yes. histories are completely changed, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. And like fun and upsetting if you're sort of a purist about things. And I tried not to be, but there were times. Yes, <laughs> I mean, and there, there are simpler things like, and I don't think this is a spoiler to say, but Frankenstein, you know, Victor Frankenstein mm -hmm. is not living in Victorian London. He's never in London at any period. Frankenstein's taking place in like the 1810s and he's in right. Switzerland and Germany all of that time, but he's been, you know, updated and relocated to, I think it's 1890 and 1891 in Penny Dreadful, mm -hmm. you know, to London. So things like that, that are sort of necessary to get all of these characters to meet. You have to decide, okay, when, when's the story actually going to take place? So there are things like that. Obviously you have to change sort of the origin of some characters, but then there were other things that I'm like, oof, wow, that was definitely... A choice. <laughs> okay. Right. That's funny. That just came to me now. The story kind of takes place in 1890s. And that was also the time where the actual Penny Dreadfuls serials were on a decline. Like they were starting to die out ah, at this time, yeah. which is such a fascinating, there has to be a correlation there because yeah. this big victory lap of all these greatest hits right. is, is set during time in the real world where the Penny Dreadful was being pushed out by more compete, like competing literature that became right. the well, one. And at the same time, like I believe at this time, like Sherlock Holmes is like greatest hits, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's doing very, very well. Yeah. How do you fight against that? You know, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it ran for three seasons. Yes. Some say it's three too few. Uh -huh. <laughs> some say it's just right. Kind of like Goldilocks. And I watched it as it was airing. So from in 2014, 2015, and 2016, 
that was like the thing I looked forward to all year was like the new seasons of, of Penny Dreadful. And I think I probably, oh, if I didn't pirate the episodes, I think I like subscribed to Showtime for you right. know, a period of time to be able to watch Got it. Got that then, free trial. and Exactly, exactly. Because I just, right, had, right. as soon as it was going to be out, I just had to watch it every week. And I don't remember if they did this with the first season, but they certainly did it with the second and I think the third. YouTube would air the premiere episode of each season. Uh, like oh, week, it's like, like a, a marketing week, thing? Yeah, a week ahead of time. And it would be sort of edited, you know, if there was content that was like too graphic for YouTube to show, then it would sort of edit it. But um, I definitely watched that many times. Were you in from the get-go of season one, like episode one? I was in from the teaser trailer. And the teaser trailer had no real footage of the show. It was all just footage that looked very much like the opening credits of the show. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's lots of like close-ups on this sort of like obsidian reptile looking stuff and, you know, or spiders and then like stitched together flesh, you know, and just had words about like monsters and what makes us human, you know, what it was just sort of throwing around the big themes of the show in this teaser trailer. And then of course I knew who was attached. I was like, oh, Ava Green, I love her, you know, and more stuff would come out about it. Mm-hmm. So if I could have designed a show, this is what I would have designed. I can't believe somebody is doing it for me. <laughs> that was my peripherally, you know, because I, I took me a while to get into the show. But from what it was being sold as and what we're reading, um, what we're telling you right now, I did not find that right away. I think mm. season one takes a while, you know, yeah. to really build to what its promise is. I, we'll talk about later when it really clicks in. But for me, it took me a few tries to actually get into the show. And I've heard that from other people too, which I find fascinating because I was just so in from the beginning that I, mm. I guess I'm curious about like what the reticence is or was or like what, and it was different for me because I was also watching it live. So I had to like wait every week. Whereas now sure. you sort of have the luxury of like, oh, I could start this show on Netflix and maybe I'll watch a little bit and then, you know, come back to it or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I think with me, it was, I think it was really slow and we had mm-hmm. a lot of characters. And I don't think for me, the, the, the plot was was clear. I didn't know where it was going. Yeah, We were introduced a lot of, I mean, in season one, we get really, really interesting characters. We, we meet Vanessa. The whole show is centered around her, Ava Green. We got Frankenstein. We've got Dorian Gray comes in and other characters. But I didn't know. I, I couldn't see the bones of the show. That makes sense. Oh, like, uh, yeah. I see that. Yeah. I was watching Groundwork being laid. You know, now looking back, I'm like, okay, well, I needed season one for season two and three to like really just go for it. Yeah. But it's kind of like, did you ever read uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, like the first book? No, I, I had watched the movie and I enjoyed the movie, but I thought to myself, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy this book because so much of this is so hard to watch. That and I'm not Fair. usually that I'm not usually that person. It, it takes a whole lot to upset me. But I remember watching that and thinking, I, "Am I going to read about that? I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that." So I, I may at some point. But in, anyway, your your point about that. There's some really upsetting stuff in that story. I mean, it, it's fair. Um, the the point was that reading that book, like the first like two hundred pages or whatever, are just like laying groundwork oh, and, and it's, that's hard. And it's that's you're hard. just like fuck man <laughs> i don't know if i can do this and it's yeah. bleak and it's grim but then once it hits in and once they you know they get to the the house and they, the, the actual detective and the thriller starts it just goes it just takes off and i feel yeah. like that's a lot like this show is once you get through and it's i understand that's a hard sell for like a lot of <laughs> you know you could watch anything but once you get through first season i promise like for me that was my biggest thing and season two and three just fucking go and it's so exciting 
And I think that that is a little earned, too, because you are uncovering mysteries at the same time that the characters are, and Mm -hmm. they are just as confused about what the hell is going on as you are, and so Mm -hmm. it just feels very designed in that fashion, and then sort of rewards you for staying curious and keeping things in the back of your mind that were brought up that are eventually Mm -hmm. then going to have a payoff. Yes, absolutely. Because it it does spin this really really well thought out spider web of all these intertwining stories yeah because there's i think there's probably like four or five plot lines there's really no new plot lines that are introduced throughout the story they just kind of shuffle up in really interesting ways and join and separate in ways that are like this is going to fall apart but it never really does and and there are lots of other subplots that just happen to certain characters sort of the episodic subplots that Mm -hmm. that sometimes interact with the main arc of the season um but then sometimes don't and then you know there are things that other characters are never even aware of for the entire thing but i think for the most part none of those things felt superfluous to me it was just sort of like enriching the world and making it a much more of an ensemble show you know than just i mean everything is the star of the show but um it does feel very much like an ensemble piece and i love the adaptations of all these characters and ensembles and how they come in wonderful performances across the board oh my gosh Ava Green is robbed. She was robbed every year she didn't win an award. I think she was nominated every, you know, for Golden Globe or for an Emmy every, mm-hmm. every single year. Somebody can fact check me on that, but I think I'm right. Um, and <laughs> never, it was always like, Amelia Clark for Game of Thrones. And I'm like, come on. Stiff competition, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, does anybody else act possession better? I don't I know. I mean, she was put through the ringer for Truly. three seasons. Truly. Really? I mean, if that merits awards she does deserves all of them yes. because yes <laughs> spent the whole first season well we won't get into it well until spoilers <laughs> okay but that but that does make me think in terms of selling the show if yes. you are someone who enjoys american horror story but would like a little bit more of a a little more literary american horror story an american horror story that takes itself a little bit more seriously that isn't afraid mm-hmm. of camp but also is not going to just descend into camp and sort of stay there and not make it worth your while, then Penny Dreadful is there for you. Yeah. It, it, it walks that line pretty finely sometimes. Uh, yeah. It takes itself. Oh, so literature. Yeah. Serious. And then it, it, there's these moments that we'll get into later that, that really just kind of reward you for sticking with it. And yeah. like, <laughs> you yeah. know, that we'll, we'll give you a little bit, this, this big bloody thing, but yeah. we'll, we'll get back to it. Yeah, well, I'm just excited to actually get in because I'm, I'm about an hour. I've just finished the show and I want to talk all about it. So let's go take a break for ads real quick and then let's Great. get into Penny Dreadful. And I'll put in the show notes when we stop talking spoilers and we come back and have some other else. So if you haven't seen the show, go watch it and then come back for the last uh, however yes. long we talked. And we want your thoughts if you already have watched it because I'm bursting at the seams right now. All right, let's take a break for ads. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. I'm Brian and this is Connor and we're talking Showtime's Penny Dreadful. We're talking about just season one. If that was not clear earlier, we are not talking about City of Angels. 
because right, neither of us have seen one. it. Yeah. <laughs> but we're just talking about the three seasons, the standalone kind of its own standalone arc. And I have just finished it. And so the first thing we have to discuss is at the end of this three season arc, Vanessa Ives battling with her, whatever her place is in this dark gift that she's been given. And, and these dark forces are pining for her to join with her and bring about the end times. She decides to, to die. Right. I mean, that's what happens, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, first, let, let me say this about the, the finale. I watched this live and okay. Showtime didn't make an announcement about it being canceled. Until, that's what I keep hearing. Yeah. This, and maybe I'm, I'm in a, a privileged position going back and knowing that there's only three seasons uh, that going into this last episode, I'm like, yeah, this is the last episode. Yeah, no, so I'm, so I'm fascinated to know how it felt. No one knew anything. No one knew anything. So I'm sitting there watching with my roommates at the time, watching the, the beginning of this final episode and the opening credits are different. They are. It, it, it feels like the end. It, yes. It's like an almost in memoriam yeah, video. Exactly. Exactly. And I was like, oh, that I don't like that. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend I don't know what that's about because I don't. <laughs> and then you watch the episode. And then at the end, it says the end. And I think I went through all of the stages of grief, like in two minutes. And then I had to like scour the internet for like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> and there's still so little clarity about it. My theory is, is my theory is that Showtime is going to cancel it. And John mm-hmm. Logan said, don't make that announcement. I'm just going to end it after three seasons as if that was my plan all along. Interesting. And then that's the story that gets peddled out is that like, oh, it was always only going to be three seasons. Because that's all I could find in my research after right. it is, no, John Logan, he pitched it as a three season show and we had to honor whatever his intentions were. Which I think is a total PR stunt. I don't think that's true mm. whatsoever. I don't know why Showtime was going to cancel Penny Dreadful. I will say that it became much more popular after its original run. So I don't know yeah. if it made a lot of money for Showtime. Uh, and it was a very expensive show, I imagine. I think John Logan, I don't know why he decided that he was just going to end it as if that was the plan all along. And I think if you watch the show, you know that that's not the plan. And I remember while while seasons were still in production, he would talk about other things that he wanted to do for the show. Like he wanted to sort of investigate uh, like the island of Dr. Moreau and just, mm. you know, and sort of bring other characters. And I just can't believe I'm like, why are you backpedaling and saying, oh, it was only ever going to be three seasons when before it was like, no, it was so clear that you were interested in investigating other things that you never got around to. Interesting. Because I, I mean, knowing it was the last episode and we get that, you know, intro and like in yeah. memoriam, it didn't feel sudden to me if that makes sense that that i could feel pieces being put into place throughout the whole time i did think it was strange that we were introducing like basically three new characters yes in the 13th hour of the show you know we've got basically ethan's father the apache man yes we have what's her name Um, hardigan i hate that character so much (laughs) completely showed up just to fight vampires and be an expert on death yeah nothing that she did could not have been accomplished by simon russell beale as ferdinand lyle i was like how dare you sideline him I love and then bring Ferdinand. this woman in who serves no purpose. Terrible. But even Ferdinand, I mean, that was a, before we introduced these other characters. I'm right. like, this show is on its way out. We're sunsetting Ferdinand. You know, we yeah, he's are, off to Cairo. He's off to Cairo. We've got Ethan finally doing what we talked about for two seasons in his unfinished business in America. We've got the darkness 
finally coming for Vanessa. You know, it all feels like it was a logical progression of what it was being built. Yes. I do think it was, a. if my theory is correct, that Showtime was going to cancel it. I do think that it was sort of masterfully designed so that it didn't necessarily seem like it. I think he did a good job mm-hmm. of sort of on a cursory level making it seem like, oh, this was always the way that the story was going to end. Because I think right. there are a lot of beats of it that w- did always exist. I just don't think that ultimately how it ended and how it all played out was had to have been the original plan. Yeah. I think it was much, yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with that, that if it was not his call, the way that they wrote that ending felt, yeah, totally. I felt like all the plot lines that they introduced had a kind of a bow to it. Maybe not the bow that I would necessarily want, but that we had, they had bows, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Unlike the last episode of Sabrina, I've got thoughts on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was uh, so abrupt. Oh, I yeah. was like whiplash, but staying on Penny Dreadful. Right. Where are you on Vanessa Ives, her fate? You, not a fan. I'm not a fan, so upset. And here's why. Mm-hmm. So, the way that it fell out is that, spoiler alert, everyone. <laughs> um, we're, we're in spoilers. So, oh, so, yeah. she fi- so, she finally realizes, right, that this man that she's been falling in love with is actually Dracula. And that he has been hunting her, he's been stalking her for years, and he is trying to get her to be his bride so that she will become the sort of mythical mother of evil. She's a necessary piece of this prophecy in order to sort of bring about the end of days. Right. She knows who he is, she shows up to kill him, and he sort of convinces her to accept that that is her nature, that her nature is that she's the mother of evil, and that, you know, this is her destiny. And she allows herself to be bitten by him. She apparently becomes a vampire because of that. That's not really clear. Very Um, unclear. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't really see any real transformation from her other than a gauzy dress, which we get in a black and a cream and some some (laughs) maroon eye makeup. And ultimately she is waiting for Ethan, the other man that she's in love with, who is a werewolf to come and save her. And saving her looks like, putting her out of her misery and shooting her and taking her out of the world. And I just thought that for a show that was so much about accepting the things that you feel like make you monstrous and that being a place of power for you. And, and I just thought that I can't believe that after all of the suffering that Vanessa Ives has gone through, after all of the work she's had to do to accept who she is, that she wasn't able to stand in her power and then use that and then have some sort of agency there. I wanted her to be able to surrender to Dracula, become the mother of evil, and then be able to go, just because I'm the mother of evil does not mean that I'm going to submit to you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take a hand in my own destiny and do something. I just can't believe that it was like, okay, so your choice was either be the mother of evil or die, and you chose... Mm -hmm death especially there's there's just so much about mental illness in the show as well and i'm always leery of those narratives about like okay so are we telling the mentally ill that like you're better off there's only one path yeah you know there's only one path and it just felt such a betrayal of the character i just felt for her so much Hmm. about the whole thing that i just wanted better for her and i believe you just believe the whole time that she's this vulnerable powerful person and then to see her so um so brought down at the end. I mean, I did love, of course, that, you know, when Ethan does finally shoot her, which is this very emotional moment, she does get salvation from that. You know, you believe at the end of the show that that Mm -hmm. he's gone to heaven. 
but I wanted her, what I wanted it to be was I want Vanessa Ives to work out her own salvation. I want her to be, I want, I want her to step into her destiny, step into her true nature, and then to still do the right thing. And the right Mm -hmm. thing would be to vanquish the evil herself. And I was like, and in this show, had she done that, I would have believed that then God would still have forgiven her and God would Mm -hmm. have restored her to her humanity afterwards. And then she would have realized, oh, my destiny was I needed to accept that I'm going to become the mother of evil because that's the way that I'm going to defeat this evil, that surrendering to it doesn't mean that I don't have power anymore and it doesn't mean that my life is over and it doesn't mean that you know, there's no good left. It just means that I have to accept this in order to move on. It's really uncanny, the similarities between this and Hellboy. I just want to point that out there, that like the, the yes. endings are exactly the same. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I see everything you're saying. I felt that, especially knowing three seasons, I didn't know she was going to die, you know, going in. I just right. knew there was three seasons. The end of season one, she has that talk with the priest. Yes. After she went through her exorcism and everything, and the priest was saying, she was asking the priest on past exorcisms, how many have lived? And he said, none. They never make it. That felt like it was a big foreshadow of like, most likely you're not going to make it out of this. Um, and and I, that was the, and that was the, the challenge of the show was to find a way for the show to make it out of this. And I felt like it, it couldn't find it and it just killed her. I don't even think that Vanessa Ives dying is the sin of the show. I think it's allowing her to die that way in a way mm-hmm. that she has to beg Ethan to shoot her. You know, I think had she died yeah. fighting for the right thing, fighting for fighting for a better world for the only people in the world that she loves, you know, they sort of cobble together this sort of Frankenstein's monster of a family. And yeah, definitely. And yep. they're the only connections that they have to each other. She's just so powerless by the end. I was like, I can't believe that. So you're the mother of evil and I've never seen you in a weaker position. <laughs> yeah. Which is saying something because we saw her in some pretty gnarly places. Yes, the show. yes. And especially too that the ending for Dracula is so anticlimactic. He just disappears. He just disappears. He just goes on, you know, like lives to fight another day perhaps, but Vanessa Ives is gone. I was just like that. That's not interesting. What's going on with yeah. him? Yeah, I'm seeing all that now. If I would have had more time to chew on this, maybe this would have come to me too. But I'm grateful that I'm here yes. walking me through because fresh off of it, I was like, huh. But now I'm like, huh. Things that I really loved about what they did, especially with Dracula, he sort of feels like a Voldemort type character in season one. And as it builds up to it, because you get little hints of like, you know that Dracula is who's behind this, but nobody ever says his name. And mm-hmm. then finally, finally hearing him say his name at the very end of the first episode of season three, and you never get to mm-hmm. see him. All you see oh. is the fear on Renfield's face, and you just know that he must have some terrifying aspect. And the way that he controls all of the familiars is a great scene where he's in that warehouse where they all hide out, and mm-hmm. he just flicks his index finger. Oh, oh my God. The myth left such an impression. Yes. I was like, oh, so, so beautiful. It was so, yeah, there were so many things that were so deftly handled that just painted this gorgeous picture of just how powerful and evil and, and fierce and that character was. I will say I felt a little, I don't know what it would have looked like and it probably would never have looked like anything that would have been satisfying, but just knowing that like, Oh my gosh, this human look that Dracula is presenting is not what he looks like. 
See that I I thought that was a, a knockout for two episodes in a row. That at the end of the first episode of season three, we get we don't see him, we just see what his presence does, yes. and that was a perfect introduction. Yes. I'm Dracula, like oh my god, ten out of ten, loved it. And then we meet in these first two episodes this really dorky zoologist. Of all the evil we've got in the show, we've got this just genuine, appearingly genuine character that right. we're like, it, finally, she's found a nice boy, you know? <laughs> right, right. So that are going to bring a nice boy home? When are you going to get a nice boy home? You know, maybe, I, maybe it was telegraphed for others, but I, I was eating that soup they were serving me. Like, I was just, oh man, I love this character. To get that reveal at the end of episode two of season three, that he was Dracula all along. I'm like, God, that is so fucking good. That was so seductive in that we all fell for this one character yeah you know what i mean i think I, I i'm trying to remember if i was tricked or not but i'm sure i'm sure that i was i'm sure that I was usually that kind I of stuff I'm, I'm usually able to like point it out but i kind of don't think that i guessed that one necessarily i walked right off that dock into the lake <laughs> you were just I like come so here you cuddly dork and then he's like i'm <laughs> dracula <laughs> after all these problematic relationships in the show i'm like right ah. yeah Damn it, the most problematic of all, and I was rooting for it. So you're like, Vanessa's finally going to therapy. She's meeting a nice man. <laughs> oh my gosh. But speaking of other problematic relationships, Vanessa Ives is not the only thing in the show. I wanted to talk so much about uh well, let's get back let's get into Frankenstein. Okay. Because I loved Frankenstein's arc. I loved the arc so much. I loved where he started, middle end. I think it you're was talking about Victor, a, or you're talking about the creature. I'm talking about creature. You're, okay. Thank you for calling me yes. on that. Beautiful performance by Rory Kinnear. Wonderful. I thought his entrance was almost as good as Dracula's. <laughs> he just oh my gosh, his entrance through, through Proteus. Yeah, just that is that is pure beautiful. Um, num, 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 num. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and exact. That's exactly the note of like, if it weren't taking itself so seriously, this could be very campy. This mm-hmm. is a very American horror story type moment, but it just reads as exactly as horrifying as it should be. Mm-hmm. And I think that dead serious, they're playing that scene, sells it. You know, yes, that he yes. <laughs> ripped through Proteus and yeah. was like, here I am. And I was nothing but like, oh. Yeah. I think that was probably the moment where I was like, this show, this show. Oh, yeah. And the look for the creature that is more consistent with Mary Shelley's description. You know, he, he's not mm-hmm. the Boris Karloff sort of block-headed bolts and the neck type thing. It's like, oh, no, you're that sallow skin. You've got that black, greasy hair. And you've got those yellow eyes that are, t- you know, he's mm-hmm. not sort of gaunt looking he can sort of pass sometimes for looking like an ordinary person i mean people make fun of him you know for being ugly or for being weird but he's not right. so grotesque that he's making people scream all the time <laughs> yes 100 percent. what i loved about him and especially this storyline and how it was adapting from the books of all of all of, we have dorian gray we've got dracula we've got frankenstein i feel like this one was the most in surprising ways um, accurate to the book mm. that we got his story with Frankenstein and the creature, that was all we're getting actual reenactments from the books, yes. but also surprising ways that the bride comes into play yeah. and finding specific ways to honor the source material and completely divert from it. Yeah. I felt like the most material, if that makes sense, from the book was adapted and used and twisted from the actual book. Yes. And I will say it feels like a story that Mary Shelley would have been very happy with. Mm-hmm. Especially given what happens with the bride, what happens mm-hmm. with with Brona slash Lily, Billy Piper, fantastic performance. Again. She was wonderful. Yes. Well, and this might tie into a conversation that maybe we should have later about threads that John Logan put into the tapestry of this that then he never tied up that I think was a mistake. 
And that mm-hmm. is Ethan never interacted. Never. With oh my gosh. I was like, why is there not a confrontation about that? Why is there not a scene of Ethan realizing that Victor has brought his like the love of his life back to life yep. and not said anything? I was like, that is a missed opportunity there. What the hell is that? The fruit may be low hanging, but God damn it. We want to eat it. Exactly. Exactly. And it just, yeah, it, that's one thing where I'm like, okay, that is cheating us. Yeah. We have the expectation that this ought to happen and the writing is good enough. And I'm like, I know that when it does happen, it's going to be satisfying. And so then the fact that they don't serve it to you, you're like, what the hell? So that's, that's one of those things where I'm like, don't tell me you only plan for three seasons. Right. I, I, I just, I remember the scene it's been fresh. It was probably yesterday <laughs> where Vanessa has been invited to Dorian's ball for yes. Evangelique. Is that her name? Yes. Angelique. Angelique. That yes. And when she goes to Ethan and goes, would you like to take escort me to a ball? I'm like, here we go. This is happening. We are going. And then he's like, uh, no, I can't. And I'm like, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> what a great. There's no more perfect place for a dramatic confrontation than a ball. Mm-hmm. You know, like that would have been. And I mean, we get a great dramatic moment at the ball i don't want to undersell this but we got a you know dancing in blood i mean the ball was memorable even without this so well and i think because ethan and victor have such a nice relationship you know in the first season they sort of become like sir malcolm's surrogate sons in a way you know like ethan Mm -hmm. teaches victor how to shoot so they have a very uh, sort of brotherly relationship that it would have been great to see something that forces that into conflict yes 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 i agree but we never got it no, no. But we did get Dorian. Once the bride and Dorian are yes. reunited yes. Um, from a previous moment, we get that, which also felt kind of, for me, I'm like, Dorian knows. Do you think he knows from day one? Oh, yes, absolutely. You think? Okay. I think, I think he knows. I have a question for you about Dorian. So you have to understand, I think I told you this earlier, that the show was airing in what I feel like was the heyday of Tumblr. So I could vent <laughs> a lot of my penny dreadful frustrations. Okay. So I was revisiting the posts that I have that are tagged penny dreadful. And I had come across a post that was just like me listing the things that got brought up in penny dreadful and then never resolved. Mm. And one of them that I'm less attached to, but I, I want to know how you feel about it is that we are never given any sort of context or explanation for Dorian whatsoever. We have no idea how Dorian became immortal. We mm-hmm. have no idea where the painting came from. And I just felt like in a series where that sort of is creating its own mythology and where all of these supernatural yeah. elements are, are, are given sort of explicit explanation, he remains so vague. I was like, I know he has to fit somewhere into this world. And it's odd to me that we're not finding a specific place for him. He was the biggest wild card of this whole show. I'll yeah, say that. Because once you have this sort of evil, mysterious immortal, and then you also have others of that sort of ilk, but that are not exactly the same, you know, like they're the vampires and then the witches. And you understand that the witches are immortal because they make a pact with Lucifer, you know, and, right. and so you under, you understand the mechanics of their supernatural nature but Dorian remained a mystery the whole time. And I think that works in stories that are just about Dorian Gray. But I was like, if you're going to put him up against these other characters, then I right. need to be able to contextualize his oddness. Yeah, I, I, I will say that not even just the not getting a backstory, we don't really get any explanation why he fits in the story at all. You know right. what I mean? That like yes. that part 
drove me nuts more than just not knowing his past. Not until Lily comes in does he does he really become that interesting to watch. Yeah, because he felt like a character in the spider web of interconnecting storylines. Everyone just kind of once they got into his orbit, there'd be a sex scene and then they would move yes. on, which it, it I'm just, all about. Go for it. But it didn't yeah. seem like it had any consequence to the larger plot at all. It just seemed like we can't pass up the opportunity to put Dorian Gray in here if we're going to do other gothic characters. But it seems like then after they did that, they struggled to figure out how do we make him an actual part of the plot and how do we make mm-hmm. him important to the other characters. I remember when I watched this the the episode where he and Ethan get together. Right. And yep. I, remember, I remember watching the build up to that scene and thinking in my head, gosh, I hope these two kiss, but that's never going to happen. And then it kept going oh, on. And I was like, it was so it was like I was forcing it to happen through my mind. <laughs> because I, really did, I really did not believe what I was seeing. I really did not believe it because I wanted it to happen so bad that I couldn't believe that it was happening while I was watching it. And then it happened. And then what did that change? And nothing like <laughs> nothing. And, and so that was I feel like another one of my grievances was like, okay, so Ethan's just like, casual bisexuality that's just like purely incidental and he never and that was the other thing too is like had ethan gone to the ball and discovered lily who's actually brona and then been in the same room with the door you know there were so many interesting oh interpersonal gosh. relationships i was like why we need there was more mileage to be gotten out of so much yeah. of it, and so much of it just sort of fell by the wayside i bet the writers were just like we can't do it because the scene has to be about Vanessa, if we yes. put Ethan there, there's no way it's not about Ethan, you right, know, in that right. scene, which I agree with. So I think they probably just wrote themselves into a corner, maybe. <laughs> well, and, and another character that I feel like got totally sidelined and wasted was Dr. Jekyll. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe. Yes and no. You mentioned earlier, the thing the show does really well is that it shows monsters that, that their monstrous makes them actually good. You know, that they can... Well, I think it's it's summed up really nicely in that what the priest says to Vanessa, mm-hmm. you know, when he's talking to her and he says, you know, you know, that sort of monstrousness, and, and for her specifically, you know, as being, you know, touched by a demon, it sort of makes you sort of sacred in a way. And, and would you want to ever be yeah, normal? And how, yeah, and how much yeah. you really want to be normal. And so, yeah, you're, it, it really does grapple with that idea of like, okay, well, what does it mean to be normal? What is it that you feel like makes you monstrous and how do you how do you live with that and by doing so it also redefines what is monstrous that in the show i think we were introduced all these actual monsters that more times than not i'm like actually it's the society and normal people (laughs) that are the true villains in a lot of ways so i think the the overt villains you know like evelyn Poole, who does really i mean one of the one of the most satisfying things i felt like with her was that we were finally seeing this version of of witchcraft that I had read about and never actually seen portrayed. Mm-hmm. You know that that scene with the baby at the end of I think it's the second season of episode two, and I was just like, I can't believe this is where we're going. I can't believe we're going here, but I'm so glad that we're going here because this is so dark and right. so yeah. vile. And I was like, give it to me, please. This is what I want. But even someone as awful as her you get a glimpse of her humanity you get how sad her existence mm-hmm. is having to live like this and how much she wishes she could get out of it now that she's in it so even the people who sort of have accepted their monstrosity but then continue to be terrible terrible people are also afforded a shred of humanity and i think it works both ways you know the, the opposite is true 
Right. And I think that's going back to Dr. Jackal and thinking that he was didn't get the full potential. I thought that was a smart subverting of what we were expecting that like he was this foil to at the end of Dr. Frankenstein's kind of arc where he had a choice to become the monster and actually, you know, completely control the bride, you know, in a right. very awful way. Or he could choose humanity in that moment. Uh, right. And he chooses humanity. At the end, he's like, no, I, I'm not going to make this call. I don't want to be the monster. I just think I felt cheated out of like, how can you give us Dr. Jekyll and not give us Mr. Hyde? But I think they did. Because in that moment, we see Dr. Jekyll being all disapproving of like, you're never going to mount to anything because you you don't have the guts or a gall or whatever he right. says. Um, and then he says, oh, by the way, I finally got my title. I'm, right. you know, Lord and then I call him Lord Hyde. And I'm like, okay, so that's, that's the evil version of Dr. Jekyll in this story that, that it's, it's actually the people in charge of this industrial world, you know, that look down and do not blink an eye and that that is the true Hyde. And I thought that yeah. was like, oh man. I do. Well, I'm glad that I do take your point about that. And maybe if it, season three is the season that I have revisited the least because it makes me so upset, mm-hmm. but Maybe I'll have to revisit it and think about that because I I was just surprised that I was like, in a show that is not subtle about all of these other things, I was like, we chose Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to give a pretty subtle rendition of what that Hyde-Jekyll relationship looks like. Right. You know, in, in a way that like, oh, this could have been much more overt because we actually do have the formula and we do know what it could do. Um, but we never get to see it used on the person that we're used to seeing it associated with. You know, but then, but then, because that's another thing that shows us so good, not in just this one instance, but it subverts all of these stories, you know, that yes. it, it knows you have expectations of what this person is. And when you introduce Dr. Jackal, you're like, okay, where's Mr. Hyde? Right. And so for me, it landed. I think it, in a perfect world, yeah, I would have loved uh, a more right. in a season four theatrical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. But I, it landed for me. And, and I thought that would really brought home a big theme that was just kind of in the peripherals of the story that these aren't really the true monsters that they're, they're right. just living in this world and, and it's, and it's other monsters that have created this world, you know, yes. that so many people are suffering in and yes. for him and, to and, go. And that point is, is, you know, uh, something that, that Evelyn comments on about, mm-hmm. the, you know, about the great, you know, the world at large and like, wh- where do you see God here in this you know, right. in the world of perpetual suffering? Like there is no God. So I'm actually going to hitch my horse and cart to, somebody who's actually going to be doing something for me. And like, yeah, there's this huge price to pay, but I'm actually seeing the dividends for my sacrifice. Right. Yeah. On, on the subject of subverting expectations. (laughs) Shall we talk about the Van Helsing moment? You know, I'm trying to remember back to Van Helsing. Can you remind me what happened to that? Because so Van Helsing, lovely cameo by the fabulous David Warner, who. If anyone who knows who that is, who you're listening, if you've seen Time Bandits, he plays evil in Time oh, Bandits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's the, he's the voice of Rachel Ghoul in Batman the Animated Series. Amazing. Yeah, fabulous British actor. Been around for forever. Perpetually playing villains. But, yeah, so he comes on as, as Professor Abraham Van Helsing, who in this is um, sort of like a mentor of Victor Frankenstein from his medical school days. And after Victor has examined the body that you know the corpse of that vampire that they slay in the first right. episode he's examining the blood and he brings the blood to to van helsing because he's a hematologist and he had developed a way of testing for vampirism in the blood right because his wife hannah had had succumbed to it you know there was something about that and then he gets to- 
we get like a scene or two with him and then he gets killed by by Caliban, by the creature, by um John Clare. Right. Just does he tear him in, I can't remember if he tears him out, but it's something similarly to Proteus dying, I feel like super violent and just like unexpected and you're just like, oh there I guess goes Van Helsing of all people. Which is yeah, yeah that's disappointing. That's where that was it has weird sort of Game of Thrones moments where it's like just don't get attached to anybody because everyone is dispensable apparently. Everyone and I, I forgot that scene so much so that when Ferdinand was getting out a card and of like, I know somebody that can help you fight these demons at bay. And uh, right. I think you'll be a formidable pair. And my head was like, oh yeah, Van Helsing, Helsing. here we go. Oh, I completely know. forgot that we yeah. already brought him in and killed right, him. Like, right. Which we did get another Dracula character in Dr. Seward, albeit not who we would expect. Right. Th- yeah. Okay, there's another thing. But I'm like, still can't believe that it was only meant to be three seasons because you cast Patty Lapone. As mm-hmm. the cut wife, Joan Clayton, season two. And then you cast her as a different character in season three. And then you fail to establish any meaningful connection between the two of those characters beyond her being just sort of another hard ass mentor for Vanessa. Well, they're both Claytons, right? That, like, they right. I think they, right. they tried. They were like, yeah, I'm a far off relative. Right. Like, but I was like, there has to be more to that. Like, is it just that you wanted? I mean, I get it. If you just wanted Patty LaFone to be in it again, whatever. But it Listen, just I was fine like, with it, you know? I know, I was, to- I was totally fine with it, but I also believed, I was like, this has to have more significance to it than just sort of this cursory level that we're, it just seems like, oh, we're layering on an excuse to cast Patty Lapone when I thought, I could see you going like, oh no, like there's actual real reason for it being her, and here, let's give that to you. And this was like, oh, we didn't, we didn't get any of that. I wonder if it, and this might be me just giving so much <laughs> a generous benefit of the doubt, but we see with Vanessa multiple times in the series that she sees the face of evil in so many familiar faces, you know, mm-hmm. um, and she'll have these conversations with Lucifer and um, Dracula and just evil, but they'll be taking on the form of people that are, that were good right. to her. Right. And so I'm wondering if the next mentor that comes along to help her looks exactly sort of like in her eyes. Yeah, exactly. So I wonder if it. That's an interpretation. Yeah, that that maybe it's more of her. Her just like I can't. You look so much like the the person that helped me before, and there haven't been many. So I'm projecting. You know, I I do love that. I think you're giving John Logan way too much credit, but I think you're giving <laughs> probably him, am. But that's but how I, think I you're sold giving it. him a beautiful out. I love how you because I'm almost sold on that idea. I should have been PR. You know, they should have called me. Truly, exactly. Um, I, before we get into it more, I wanted to talk about that first instance with Patty and that first scene in that shack. Cause that whole episode was tops of the show. I oh thought my gosh, it was it's so, so good. It, it, and somebody at the time had written, I can't remember if it was, somebody had done a review of that episode that um, was sort of calling it a superhero origin story episode. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's yeah. Exactly it feels a lot like that. It, yeah. Exactly how it feels. That is maybe the episode that I have rewatched more than any other episode. I think that and A Blade of Grass from season three when Vanessa is in the Banner Clinic the whole time and Rory Kinnear is doing oh, a yeah. beautiful d- triple performance of the Orderly and Lucifer and Dracula. And Dracula. <laughs> yeah, he had a tall order. That was so fun. That was so, so fun. I thought it was wonderful. I thought Patty, the performance was so good that when she did come back, as when she walked in the room as the as the therapist um, doctor, yeah. I like gasped. I was like, <gasps> yeah. I was like elated that she was back because the performance was so good. Who'd have thought, Patty yes. Lapone? Um, I know. Yeah, <laughs> really, I really think good. 
She's excellent in television. And, like, give Patty a character. Give her a dialect. You know, give her right. the makeup. Give her the contact lenses when Helen McCrory and the other witches, you know, come to the, the house on the moor and they have their sort of spat at each other, you know, about being sisters and, like, you know, do you really want this to be your last battle? So, so good. It's just delicious. There's so much about the show that is just delicious. So wonderful. And it's not her first, like, horror television. She was in American yeah, Horror Story, American too. Horror Story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, keep it going, Patty. We want to see you in more horror. Yeah. Just so if I can get at it. We've only touched the tip of the iceberg in this show of what we could talk about. But I don't want to miss out on a lot of the Ethan storylines because there were a lot of friendships and a lot of relationships that came from this. Yeah. Um, that... In hindsight now that it's done i'm like that was kind of thrown away but i really thought that was going somewhere and i'm really disappointed it wasn't one that didn't go somewhere was the ethan and hecate love line yeah i was honestly very disappointed in that <laughs> and i texted you after she you know betrayed her mother yeah terrible uh and i was the opposite end of like she was not hiding this plan at all. It was happening in broad daylight, you know, yes. like in front of her, like, hi mom, I just went to go see, you know, the wolf of God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so I loved her. I think as a character, I loved what I thought was, I was watching an ascension of this witch. And it felt like that, especially when she followed Ethan across, you know, America and really sold this. You, you don't need to be the, the hound of God. You should be the wolf of the devil. Yes. And it seemed like it worked in that she, he was actually going to be like, nope, this is it. I'm teamed with you. And I'm like, hell yes, this is the, this is the world. I, I didn't know what was going to go. And I'm so happy it went this way. And it, and, and, and it didn't go that way. It just felt like it in that moment that her, his dad was dead. At the end of that scene, she died. And then he was right back on track to being the savior. But just when we talk about monsters embracing their monstrous, you know, appetites and, yes. and really giving in and that not being the enemy. In, in fact, it's just you becoming. Um, I thought that was so cool. And I loved that what he was rising up against that she was selling. And I'm like, yeah, fuck them all. You know, like, yes. absolutely. You don't need to be tied down to any of this. And, and, and hearing her backstory with her mother that she didn't choose this. She was thrust into it. She was yes. cut and branded by the devil. Like her mom offered her up at what, at age 12, that like, this was not was about. I think it was like five. Was it five? I oh think my it was gosh. Five. Yeah. So you understand why she's so upset. Yeah. And so that means like that really, those scenes were selling it on Hecate even more of like, yeah, this is a world that's being so unbelievably cruel. Then you two are given this, these dark gifts from born out of the cruelty and turning it around and owning it and using it as a way to be, I, I don't know. It was, it was working for me and I was really excited to see what dark climax they went to and it, and it didn't go anywhere. She died. And then yes. he went back to London and tried to save Vanessa. And I was like, what? That's so interesting to me because I don't think I ever invested in that relationship because I always knew I was like, it's Ethan and Vanessa, baby. I was like, she's only ever going to be a distraction. I think I got probably irritated with it after a while that I was like, oh my gosh, why are they still together? Why are we still going across the desert? Also, why, if she's a witch, is she like dying of thirst in the desert? What's the point? Yeah, of being a that witch? was interesting. It yeah. was like, if you're suddenly going to be susceptible to human expiration. Okay, whatever. I did. <laughs> I was like, what's the point? I did appreciate the role that she serves as sort of this like, you know, it's, it's, it's the devil coming to Jesus in the desert mm -hmm. you know, and literally they're in the desert. So I did, I did very much enjoy that aspect of the relationship, 
And I did like getting to hear more about, you know, her backstory a little bit. You understand why she hates her mother so much. But I just never believed that that was going to be anything. I was like, they just have to get this out of their system. And then he's always going to go back to Vanessa because they're endgame. They're the mother of evil and the wolf of God. Like, come on, you guys. And that's what I thought. I thought John Logan, I gave him too much credit. I thought he was really writing in another great subversion of what that meant. You know, the wolf of God. And what happens when the wolf of God says no to God. You know, that's what I wanted to see. And that I always knew it was going to be back down to those two at the end. But I was like, it's way too easy for you just to fall in love at the end and guide us to salvation. It can't be it, you know. I think I would have loved if there had been cool siblings. I think it would have been great if Hecate had had a sister or a brother and one of them had believed in this sort of traditional way of doing things and like was really Mm -hmm. sort of sycophantic to Evelyn and the other one thinking, no, there's another way to do this. And I'm so tired of playing second fiddle to you and, and, you know, fuck you all. I think that would have been a fun relationship. So I, and just because I was like, she's so ungrateful and she has so much, she still has to learn. And then ultimately, I was like, yeah, you're not going to... I don't even remember what Hecate's plan was, honestly. Not like once she was in the desert with Ethan. Well, her, her plan was to... was to Her mother's goal was just immortality, really. You know, she was right. appeasing Lucifer, and in return, he would keep her alive. Whereas I felt Hecate had much more cosmic goals of like, you're, you're focusing on one half of the equation. There's still this hound over here. That's just as big. And so right, I yeah, double down just, on yeah, that. You just want to serve up Vanessa to Lucifer because that's what he's asked you to do. I think I just never had faith in her being able to accomplish her goals. I think that's oh, what it was. I was like, I just don't, I just don't believe in you. <laughs> I don't think I did until she sent the hound out on and killed her mother. You know, like I, know, I was like, gr- and that, here we that, go. That what a great slash, her head spinning around. Which I, I loved that episode so much. And because that, yeah. that release too, we got to talk about Ethan and Sam Benny. Oh, yeah. Uh, which which might have been the most tragic thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> I sad. was devastated that they they sold this friendship between those two that I really, really latched onto and I really loved and appreciated. And then for it to, that, like, no, you have to stay alive. And yeah. Uh, I'm not going to let you and just, you know, I don't won't say it a lot, but I'll say that Josh Harnett's performance there of no, like I won't do this. was pretty moving. I was, I was so upset. Oh yeah. I I was just dripping with tragedy. And that was, that was a moment that really hit hard. Yeah. I cried several times during pain dreadful. There's so many, so many moments that brought me to tears. Um, Uh, It's a great show. Yeah. great Great show. Okay. Another thing, this is going back to things that I'm like, why didn't we ever pick up this thread? that you put in there. We spent so much effort in season one about making this Egyptian connection. Oh yeah. They really dropped that. That really she's dropped a reincarnation of Amunet. Of Amunet. And, and I was like, wait a minute, these, these vampires have exoskeletons that are inscribed with hieroglyphics that detail a curse. Why? What's that about? And so I was like, okay, so there's an Egyptian connection between the vampires. There's an Egyptian connection between the vampires and Dracula. And then I got very excited in the first episode of season three when I learned that Ferdinand Lyle was going to Cairo. Yeah, it felt like, here we go. We're really doubling down on this. Here's what I thought was going to happen. I was like, okay, this is what it is. Imhotep, the mummy. We're going to bring the mummy into this. And I'm going to bet he's one of Dracula's like first disciples, right? So like Dracula has Mm -hmm. fallen to earth. Lucifer has fallen to hell. And Imhotep is one of the first people that Dracula 
turns and he's and Imhotep is like charged with marking the first vampires with these hieroglyphics that describe the spell about Amun and Amun Ra from the Book of the Dead. And then like as a reward, Dracula offers him eternal life, even if he becomes mummified. And then it was like Ferdinand Lyle is gonna go to Cairo, uncover that sarcophagus, and bring the mummy back to London, and he's gonna be like Imhotep, first disciple of Dracula. And then that did not happen. It didn't. I wish it did, though. That right? sounds really good. Right? Like, what? Come on, yeah. you guys. Come on. They, they really dropped the ball there. And I yeah. also was confused. I loved season three. I loved the vampires in season three. But um, there was no... No one really addressed why the design of these vampires was radically different than season one. Right, because you had, in season one, you had master vampires, and then you had um, the sort of... Um, like the somnolent women or whatever, the sort of thralls. And so you right. had, the idea was sort of that, like you had these creatures that were maybe um, like natal vampires, I guess you would say, like that's always been their nature and hence versus you know, why they turned. were like versus people that returned. And so my sense was that all of the vampires that you see in season three are so human looking because I'm like, Oh, these are all the humans that you had turned into vampires. And that's, you know, that's why they look this certain, you know, like um, Fenton from yeah. season one. The boy that gets trapped in the house. Yeah, I, I didn't pick up on that. I, I was actually pretty surprised when going through the, the first, you know, episode of season three. I'm like, what are these ghouls, you know, that are walking around? I'm yeah, interested. And I then think, like, oh, they're vampires. I'm like, no, we already, we already addressed that. Yeah, I think <laughs> they look like that. <laughs> yeah, I think they're the type of vampire that are the, the ones that get turned, not the ones who are the master vampires like Interesting. The, first, the first two in, in the first season. Hmm. Well, I missed it. I missed it, but I didn't miss. We're talking about specific things. I wanted to talk about just broader themes that I thought were really interesting that Mm -hmm. the show was addressing. And that was, there was a lot of great juxtaposition happening. Like one, the ideas of brandings and the ideas of um, what you, who pegs you as theirs versus, you know, unwillingly being taken. And it was actually the Patty um, origin story. Yeah. that brought it home is that she was branded um, by the devil, but she was trying to be good versus Vanessa Ives being branded by God, you know, and maybe toying with the idea of going the other way, the idea of ownership and who owns you. Yeah. Well, and even the, you know, and the nightcomers, the witches, you know, when they go into their sort of nightcomer form, which I loved, I love all of the stuff with the witches. I thought was such, so much original sort of mythology that's, up and you know they're all of their brandings on their naked bodies mm-hmm. be, you know sort of where the devil has raked his claws across them and sort of and claimed them mm-hmm. um, so so good and we're led to believe that was their true form and that everything else is like a glamour that they put on top of it yeah i think yeah i think so is that what you okay yeah which makes it even more tragic <laughs> you know that right. that's right that is what and especially if that happened at such a young age that's disgusting you know yeah, yeah, poor baby Hecate. But you know what? You suck at being a witch. I'm sorry. You got thirsty in the desert? No. <laughs> sorry about it. I mean, she she had the snake trick. That was pretty cool. Okay, but you know what's interesting about that is that the language, one of my favorite parts about it, the verbus diablo, loved that idea, loved that it is sort of this language that you can't learn. You mm-hmm. have, you know, you sort of have to be touched by the devil in order to in order to understand it and be able to speak it. And the idea that the more that you speak it, the more you risk um, becoming susceptible to his influence. 
but that that language was developed by um, David Peterson, who also, I mean, he does all of the fictional languages for like all of the TV shows. The the language that the Dothraki speak in Game of Thrones, he developed that language. Interesting. When there was that ill-fated series, um, Emerald City, on NBC, I think it was, and the witches in that had their own sort of language. But it's really interesting. He had a he had a few blog posts about how he came up with this language that there is no real written account of, and it's only oral, and it's something that you wouldn't be able to learn. And so figuring out how, what, which languages he drew on to make those words and how the sort of grammar and the syntax would relate to each other. Um, yeah, it's a tall order. Yeah, really, really, really fascinating stuff. And I thought it sounded so, so great. It was, I loved, loved everything about that. Um, yeah, and Vanessa, or Ava Green, really... Oh she spoke God. that most more than anyone. Yeah, with the puppet, with that simulacrum of her of herself, you know. And then see that oh, that yeah. is a moment there that led me to believe there is a way for Vanessa Ives to embrace who she is and use that power to say "fuck you" to these two dudes that right. want to claim her as their bride. There's a way for her to be like, actually, I'm going to be who I am, and it's neither of you two; it's just me. But we never got that. She no. said, "said." shoot me like i said i didn't shoot me which there's a world where she was going out on her terms versus everyone pining sure you know yeah did you know that even on the soundtrack because i've listened to this soundtrack so many times soundtrack is gorgeous beautiful um the the sound of the bullet shot is in that song really really Yeah, (laughs) yeah i think the song is called let it end because i think that's what she says to him and you hear yeah the, for whatever reason on the soundtrack the official soundtrack the sound effect for the bullet is heard <laughs> which makes it really drives home the let it end part we talk about yeah. um angels and demons the, the the catholic art in this show you know bringing it back yeah god is specifically absent throughout all three seasons you know and 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 all of his kind which which yeah. really i mean you're you're going through Vanessa's storyline in literal darkness like their whole time and so for her to come to this like i'm going knowing that it will end the evil you know right and my suffering is i don't know I, I, watching it binging it over a weekend Mm-hmm. It kind of got to the point of like, I don't know what else you do. <laughs> you know? right, yeah, please, please release this woman. <laughs> Just let it end. You know that, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we I spent did. three seasons trying to find you know heroic ways to overcome this, but it ain't showing itself, and, right. and God isn't showing up. You know to help out. Well, and I do think what's interesting about that, really, the only that I can think of, the only real evidence of God is is in Ethan, in that he's the Hound of God, right? He's sort of the only sort of yeah. like emissary of of goodness and you know and of heaven but i what feels so poignant and so resonant is that this is a world where everywhere you look it's just profoundly evil and right. all all of the supernatural things that you're encountering are profoundly evil and yet even when all around that's all you see all around you and those are things that you don't have to believe in because oh my gosh they're real actually that you are still choosing to believe that like, but there's also good in the world. There's also good in the universe. And I have to believe that you, you actually have to have faith because I think for the most, for the most part, if we lived in a world where we saw supernatural evil all the time and the only evidence of the supernatural that we saw was evil. It was evil. Yeah. I think our faith in a good sort of supernatural, you know, entity or force in the world would be pretty shot. I think it'd be pretty yeah. hard to have faith in a world like that, but then, but Vanessa is the, is the one who, you know, for the most part, I mean, she does, she does waver. She does have her moments where 
where she's not, she and the Almighty are not on good terms. And it, it does end with her finding Lord, you know, that she's yes. like, I see yes, him. She and still so, comes back to him. Yeah. Yeah, it does, it does seem cheap it, to just kill her in that way. And in a way, specifically, like seasons before this, she was like, just kill me. And then Ethan's like, I'll never do it, you know? Right. Um, so it feels kind of weird that we're like circle on, you know, years later going, all right, maybe we should have done that a while ago. This would <laughs> save well, you a lot of pain. And um, I, but, think, I think I'm still hoping for a world where, you know, in the season finale of season two, you and Lucifer is talking to Vanessa he offers her this vision of what her life could look like. And we have this lovely, lovely scene of her being married to Ethan and they have two children yeah. and then they're going to have Jonathan Harker and Mina Harker, you know, over for lunch or whatever. And I think I just, in my heart of hearts, I just wanted that so badly for her. And I wanted to believe that that was possible. And I thought, I think there's a way that she can have that and she doesn't have to give in to the devil in order to get what she wants. I mm. want to believe that she can get what she wants on her own terms. And so I think I still would have been satisfied even if she had died on her own terms. But I, there's also another part of me that was like, can't after all this suffering, she get what she actually deserves and what she wants. And I was like, and what she deserves more than anything else is happiness. Like of all of these people, yeah. like I just want her to be happy and I want her to be loved. Yeah. And, and it is a, it is kind of a dangerous thing that like at the end like the only happiness you're gonna get is if you die you know that right right that, that's your only release um yes. which can come across as pretty tone deaf <laughs> probably yeah yeah and i think too that um i you know i think in the early days of pain i felt a sort of kinship with john logan because i was like oh he's another you know, he, he's a gay writer, as am I, and he is sort of fascinated with these same themes and ideas and these same characters, you know, as am I. And so I felt very connected to him and sort of this sort of analogy for um, queerness or for being gay is, you know, as feeling very monstrous and then, feeling, and then thinking like, okay, how do, I, how do I contextualize that monstrousness? How do I come to a place where um, that's not something that I'm afraid of and I don't see myself, you know, as cursed or whatever? Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and there's that great scene in um, in the Cutwife episode where Joan Clayton and Vanessa are talking about that. And um, Vanessa says something about feeling monstrous and, and Patty Lapone says, you know, is that how you feel? And she says, yes. And then she says, then it will be true as long as you feel it so. Mm. And it's like that, that is such another part of it that like, as long as you believe this about yourself, as long as you believe that this is something that makes you unworthy of love, that makes you unworthy of belonging, that makes you an outsider in this world it's going to be true. But if you right. embrace it and believe that, you know what, despite this, even if this is a burden that I feel like is not easy to carry every day, I am still worthy of all these other things that every other human is worthy of, given all of, you know, given my imperfections, given my curses, given my monstrosities. Which is a, which is a beautiful message that I feel like the show struggled to portray. And it, yes. we, we never really got an example of that working you know that like we, right. we have we have ethan struggling with that and hecate going we embrace it that's how we'll find it the, the you know ended a lot of bloodshed and he wasn't happier um i think there was a world where it could have <laughs> but um it, we, we saw that with frankenstein frankenstein and his creature that both thought by by really digging into who we are quote unquote we could find some happiness from it and it, it just keeps ending in tragedy which yeah, it seems bleak. to follow their monstrosity you know so it's it's i would have loved 
for the show to show us more examples of that succeeding. Cause I, yeah. and, right down and, to Vanessa just being like, Nope, I've been touched by evil. The only way out is to kill myself. Yes. And I think, yeah. And I think that was my greatest sense of betrayal was like, Oh, you were setting yourself up to tell such a, such a great story. Um, you know, it's such an important theme and, and, you know, all the ingredients are right. You have everything going for you. And so then to, to have it, and I would have been, I think I would have been more satisfied if it had ended in a place where it was like, wait, we can't end it there. It's still, you know, things are still unresolved. If it had ended right. in a more classically like, oh, the show got canceled sort of ending, then mm-hmm. I could have been at peace with it because then I could have been like, it didn't end. You can imagine whatever you want for the endings of these characters. And you can always believe that maybe in the future, the show will come back in some sort of way, you know, Netflix will pick it up as an independent show, which who knows if that would have happened because that wasn't particularly common yet when the no. show got canceled. Yeah. And then the infuriating thing was that then when they brought city of angels on was sort of dubious about that because it was, it was taking place within the same universe as Penny Dreadful, but it was in Los Angeles in the 1930s. It wasn't going to have any of the same characters. As far as we knew, there weren't any plans to have any sort of cameos or anything. And so then I watched the first episode when it came out and I was like, this bears no relationship to the previous the previous story in any way. I mean, like even down to the production, I was like, the composer isn't even the same. It's not the same costume designer. You know, it's not the Hmm. team is not even the same. And I was like, what it feels like is you're profiting off of the success of your previous show. And you're sticking on the penny Vettel label to, to just like amp up hype for this show. And I was like, that, that feels wrong because what you should be doing is giving us an ending that is worthy of the show that you started with. Yeah. So I, I mean, many so shows do that. We, we you know, it's yeah. reboots or, or uh, many years later, last season, you know, I feel like that's yes. all, all of, uh, it's very in vogue to do that. Yeah. And, so when and City of so- Angels got canceled, I was like, I'm shedding no tears. You have exactly what you deserve. <laughs> no tears. I, yeah. It just proves you right. I mean, and then there's plenty of really good success stories of that happening too, of coming years later and wrapping yeah. it up. Um, I think, like right off the top of my head, the Twin Peaks revival I think was just sure. like fucking ten out of ten. I love totally. that. I think like El Camino, Breaking Bad, bringing it up, and and mm-hmm. which even I thought Breaking Bad was perfect, you know, finale either way. So I was like, sure. why touch it? And then the El Camino was like, yeah, okay, that's pretty good, you know. I, I think the same thing about um, Hannibal. Because I think because I think Hannibal, there's a good chance that that might come back. They keep, they really do keep talking about it. Don't with more more get frequency. my hopes up. Stop. Yeah, it. but but that's a great example. Of it. Like <laughs> it, it it really did it really did end in a way, and it ended in sort of like a final but also ambiguous way, so that you weren't heartbroken if it never came. You know, it, it didn't leave you hanging in the same sense that um, you know that there were loose ends that needed to be tied up, but right. also the way that it ended was like, what the fuck just happened? Um, so to believe that, like, if there's more after this, what would that even look like um, is so sort of enticing. And I have faith, like, okay, if that comes back, like, I will trust that that's going to be that that's going to be good and successful. And they're only going to bring it back if they're going to do justice to the story that they had already been telling. Sure, that makes sense, and I hope they do. I mean, yeah, it's it's a little muddy now that Clarice is back. You know that right? But the, but the only thing one. about that is that they can't they can't even acknowledge each other. You know, like one no. is totally MGM and the other one is totally Dina De Laurentiis and they, they have their rights to certain characters, you know, and it's just, it's not going to, 
they're not going to cross over at all. And especially because they, they already scavenged so much of Clarice's character for Will's own character development, which they had to do because they were never going to get the rights to Clarice. So sure. I can forgive them of that, as upset as I am about that. But um, Now, Clarice, I mean, we're, we I love Penny Dreadful. I think we're, we're exiting spoilers now. <laughs> yeah, so now we're, we're talking about other things. things. We're not talking about other things because we could talk for hours. But I just, I just, I think that Clarice is really interesting new property coming out. And I have not read the second book. I've only read Red Dragon. And I, am I led to believe that there's more story in Silent of the Lambs that Clarice is pulling from? Or is this all new territory? I think like it's all later. new territory. And I think what I love about it is that it is clearly directly a sequel to the Jonathan Gummy film. Because it's taking place like a year after those, you know, like it's stylizing yeah. itself after that. You look, you know, you look at the trailer, you look at how everything looks and you're like, oh, this is meant to look like a continuation of the oh, film with Jodie Foster. Yeah. You know, like even down to the font, you know, that, that they use for everything. Yeah. And it's taking, and, and it's taking place in the early 90s, which, you know, the, you know, it's funny, the Hannibal series, the chronology of those stories is kind of wonky because you go, wait, okay, so Hannibal Lecter was born in the 1930s, but then how old is he when Hannibal happens? You know, like, does Science of the Lambs take place in the 80s? Or, you know, what? it, it, it sort of gets confusing. Right. Um, but this is very much grounding itself in the world of the Jonathan Demme film. I mean, there are things that you learn about in the book, you know, about Clarice's, you know, backstory that I'm sure they will mine for content. But I think it's just filling in the missing years in the way that in the way that Hannibal had set itself out to do, because Hannibal sure. had set itself out to go, here's a gap in the chronology where something must have happened before Hannibal Lecter was incarcerated, and you know he and Will Graham had a, a little bit of a working relationship. What's that going to look like? And then they chose to then continue that on through events that actually happened in the books. Whereas this, so far what we're being led to believe is that it's just going to focus on Clarice's early FBI career between Hannibal Lecter being at large and Hannibal Lecter cropping up again in um, Italy, and I don't you even think, think they're going to recast Hannibal. Then he'll show up. No, I, feel I, like no, like I, I don't. I don't think they're going to go that far. At least I hope they don't go that far. I hope it really yeah. just is like it's prime time TV. They need viewers. You know what I mean? They're like I know, but I but that's the thing is like I'm hoping that they can tell an interesting enough story because I know that they're also not doing a sort of monster of the week type thing. Like it's not going to be like Criminal Minds. It's not going to be. Every episode, Clarice is hunting down a serial killer. And I don't even actually know if she's dealing with a serial killer in this first season. There's, they have sort of talked about like what the, uh, what the force of antagonism is. And it is not. it sounds like it's a little bit more complicated than a serial killer. I'm fascinated to know what that means. Uh, yeah, yeah, I am too. Especially seeing some of the footage. I know that they have recast Buffalo Bill, which they need just for sort of like her to have flashbacks. Um, mm-hmm. And they cast someone who looks an awful lot like Ted Levine. Um, and you can see in that first trailer, you know, you've got, you know, an image of him with those spooky night vision goggles on. Uh, but I don't think they're, I, what I am interested to find out is how are they going to, how will the characters refer to Hannibal Lecter and what happened in Silence of the Lambs in this show? Because I don't, I, cause I think they're forbidden from saying the words Hannibal Lecter because. Fascinating. And you because, have a sequel to Silence of the Lambs. Yes, because they don't have the rights to it. Because they don't have the rights to the character, they would have to pay the De Laurentiis company if they were going to use Hannibal Lecter, and they're not going to sell those rights to them. So they can only speak of names that MGM has rights to, and that's Clarice, and that's um, Buffalo Bill, that's Catherine Martin, that's Senator Ruth Martin, um, it's Paul Krendler. That's why, oh, I just now figured it out. I was trying to figure it out. I was like, who's going to play Jack Crawford? 
who's going to play Clarice's boss? And then I realized, oh, the De Laurentiis company actually has the rights to Jack Crawford because Jack Crawford first appears in Red Dragon. So they're going to have to come up with a clever reason for why Jack Crawford is not part of the FBI. He's not there. Or Clarice's career. <laughs> well, you know, in, if, I, if I think back to Silence of the Lambs, Jack Crawford's an older version of him, right? Yes, he's, yes. That could be just as easy as he's passed, you know? Right, and I can't really remember what... I think in Hannibal, the book, I think he's in it a little bit, and he's either retired, but he doesn't feature too much. And I can't remember if Clarice goes to talk to him. At some, I think she does. You know, he doesn't figure largely in it, but he is still around. Um, but I don't remember the particulars of like, okay, well, how long was he her boss for? And mm-hmm. when did he retire from the FBI? So I'm sure they'll, you know, deal with some of that. But... Um, we're excited. It's going to yeah, be, yeah, uh, hopefully, it's a good show. We always want more, uh, more Yes. Horror. Yeah, it's, there's, there's, uh, I, so far, nothing has, nothing that has come out about it has raised a red flag for me yet. Just the, the idea that I'm doing it raised a small red flag of being like, CBS is doing it, you know? Yes, <laughs> yeah. When you think about CBS, you're like, is this going to look like The Blacklist? Not to, yeah, I mean, what, what's not to hate on The Blacklist, but like, that's just a totally different type of show. <laughs> but no, any, any good horror, um, is good in my book uh, because Silence of the Lambs is horror. If you don't think so, what planet are you on? I don't. Right. I've never understood that people don't think it's horror. Um, yeah, I think it's. I, I think all of those sort of distinctions are always just like marketing things. You mm-hmm. know, like psychological thriller. I'm like, yeah, that's a that's marketing. I was like, that's just a marketing play. <laughs> I think that's just one of the many examples of. At a time when horror wasn't considered good, I think we're almost there where horror is, you know, right, the mainstream yeah. is really accepting it and, and doubling down on it. We're seeing all these great actors now and, and, and pushes for movies and bigger budgets yes. and all that. Uh, but this was at a time where it was still very much like a penny dreadful. It's for, it's cheap. Exactly. You know, it's not supposed yes. to be good. So when a good one comes along and you're like, oh, it's not really oh. that. It's, it's, yeah. And they had no sort of expectations of success, certainly not the sort of success that they enjoyed at the Academy right. Awards that year. <laughs> Who knew that they were going to sweep the top five categories? It's so good. It's so good. I bought the uh, soundtrack a couple of years ago. Um, oh, yeah. Still listen to it. Howard Shore. Howard Shore is so good. So good. Rings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So good. That'll, that'll be interesting. I wonder who's doing the, the soundtrack for the series, and I hope that they, you know, if, if you've watched that film as many times as, as you and I have, I hope that fans are able to pick up on sort of musical motifs. I hope that they... They carry totally. that. I would totally them. notice it. I listen to that music all the time. It's beautiful. Yeah, because it, it, it is so atmospheric. You know, like I can think about, I know exactly what it sounds like when she's running through that FBI. Um, mm-hmm. You know, of course, I know just what it sounds like um, when she's on the phone with him at the end. You know, he's walking in Jamaica. You know, there's so many moments where I'm like, I know exactly what the soundtrack sounds like at that moment. At that moment. So, yeah, just get there, just buy the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> it's just easy as that, right? Yeah. Well, this has been super fun. We are now um, an hour and a half in, so I feel like we gotta we could act we could talk for hours. But thank you so much for coming along and and airing our penny dreadful thoughts. Um, yes, there's truly nothing else I would rather talk about. I I, I <laughs> yeah. yell about this show all the time. People tell me to shut up. I mean, I have not stopped talking about this show since it stopped airing, and I've not stopped griping about how upset I am about how it ended. So this is <laughs> like purge those demons in a way and i'm sure they will crop up again because like everybody else's demons they're gonna be with me my entire life so i'll go on my true. deathbed and i will still be bitching and moaning about penny dreadful let but it end 
you let it end. For now, I have I have purged it for for the time being until it rears its ugly head again. Well, I enjoyed binging it over a weekend. It's on Netflix. If you're like me and COVID affected, check it out. It's it's great chat television. Um, if you're like me, just to get through season one um, because it's we're laying a lot of groundwork that season two and three really just yes. go for it um, in really fun, exciting ways. But and season one is only eight episodes. That's true. It's not a terribly long show. Season one's eight episodes, and I think the other two are ten, right? At least season two. Is season 10 two episodes. is ten. Season three is nine. I season three is nine. Fresh okay. off. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, Brian! Wow, wow, wow. So me. So now I got to look for the next thing to binge because that has been my quarantine thing. Just watching, yeah. consuming <laughs> long form media oh in God. a very short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, but thank you again for coming on. We'll have you back, I'm sure, again in the future. Thank you. I love it so much. Absolutely. And uh, stay spooky, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.